The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Um, good morning, folks. Hey, it's good to be with you. Um, it's, it's always fun for myself and my family to come up um, from Brisbane and visit for the day and, um, and to share with you. And um, it's... Look, I, I, this is, we're at the end of your Titus series, I understand. And so um, I hope this, this does provide an, a nice kind of end to where you have been or where you've been going, uh, how you've been going through Titus. Um, but what I might just quickly um, pray and then we'll get into the passage. Father God, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that your church um, is local and it's global and uh, that we can uh, visit and preach and open up your word together. Uh, and, and Lord, we pray that you would teach us this morning what you want to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, well, uh, a friend of mine is a sweet potato farmer. Uh, he grew up in Brisbane. Um, he, he was interested in agriculture. He studied agriculture at university uh, at the sort of UQ Gatton Agricultural University thing. Um, and, and he now is a, is a sweet potato farmer up in Bundaberg, um, and he has quite a successful sort of farming thing. He, he, uh, he has even sort of, you know, kind of exported his particular sweet potatoes. Um, how does, how does one get into sweet potato farming? You know, you might be wondering, why does someone get into sweet potato farming? I don't really know, but he, um, he, when he was studying, I think he, you know, it wasn't like his lifelong dream that he was like, well, I think one day I'll be a sweet spud farmer. I love the sweet spud. Um, but I think it was just really, he, he sort of, as he was studying, he had to do a research project and uh, he had a bit of an internship with... Um, with like the Department of Primary Industry or something like that. And, and the, one of the projects they had on the go was a sweet potato project. Um, and, and so his, his whole task in that project was to research how to improve sweet potato yield. You know, how do we get more sweet potatoes per acre than we've ever gotten before? You know, how can we be more productive, more profitable, more fruitful uh, in the realm of sweet potatoes? And um, and that has set a direction for him in his career, he, and he's done a very good job of it, um, and, and that's great. He, uh, he is always looking to improve uh, his sweet potato productivity um, and, and fruitfulness and yield and, and profitability of his land and his produce. Um, now, if you're like me, you don't maybe have a lifelong love of sweet potatoes, um, but there are areas of your life that you do care about fruitfulness and, and productivity and profitability and improvement, you know, good sort of outcomes. Um, maybe you're a, you're a bit of a health nut, and so you care about things like nutrition and calories in and calories out. Uh, you care about fitness and exercise that is going to get good outcomes for you in your health. Uh, or perhaps you're a business owner and you care about uh, income and expenditure and you're always thinking, well, how can I do a good job? How can I get, you know, sort of more profit, more profitability out of my business to keep improving, um, you know, uh, to grow my business and perhaps to bless others out of those profits? 
Um, I'm a high school teacher, and one of the things that our kind of uh, that we're constantly talking about, it seems, uh, amongst the staff, is uh, high-impact teaching strategies. You know, how do we uh, how do we teach in a way that's going to get the best educational outcomes for our students? What's going to be a profitable use of our time? In all sorts of different industries and aspects of our life, we have. Uh, this similar kind of concern. What are the things that are actually going to be of benefit to ourselves or the people around us or the people in our industry or the produce of our, you know, of our farms or whatever it might be? Um, we care about what is going to work, what is going to be beneficial. Now, in our passage uh, today, starting at verse 8, uh, we get this language of profitability in what Paul is talking about. So if you have a look at verse 8, Paul, uh, he says, Look, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. These things that I am talking about are profitable, they're beneficial, they're good, they're going to result in some positive outcome. These things are the things that are worth investing our energy into. These things are worth our time, they are where we should focus. Now the question is, what exactly is the saying that Paul is referring to in this passage? Um, what is he on about, and in this context, now this, this verse 8, it kind of sits as a, I think a little bit of a hinge between verses 1 to 7, it kind of refers back to there, but it also shapes what's going on going forward in 8 to 15, because he's, the, the same kind of theme is working through this whole chapter 3 of Titus, um, and so you have had a bit of an introduction to this last week already. But in Titus uh, 3, 1 to 7, Paul has already outlined this link between Christians' good works and the gospel. He urges um, Titus to tell the Cretan Christians um, that they should be committed to good works in the world around them, you know, submitting to rulers, speaking evil of no one, avoiding quarrelling, uh, showing courtesy to all people. You know, they've got to be ready for that good work because we were once lost in all our horrible sin and wickedness, but Jesus, by his mercy, has saved us. You know, so he linked the good news of the gospel. We were sinners, but we've been saved by God's grace. We've been saved by the work of Jesus Christ, not because of our works, but so that we can commit ourselves to good works. We're saved by grace, not by what we've done, but we are then urged to be like Jesus, be like what we have experienced from Jesus, and to show that grace and love and uh, compassion and kindness and generosity and goodness to the world around us. These things together, Paul says, the gospel adorned by the good works of Jesus' church, is profitable for people. It's profitable for us, 
but it's profitable for our neighbours, our community, our world, you know, when we have the proclamation of the gospel and the loving our neighbour through good works going hand in hand. Now, last week, um, Jimmy tells me uh, that he focused very much on that idea of us sort of being out in the world, Christians um, doing these good works out where it then, you know, it does for the outsider looking at the Christian community, looking at Christians in the workplace or in the family or in, at uni or wherever, um, that people will see that love, that those good works of Christians and it will make the gospel message um, more appealing, more attractive. It adorns the gospel. It looks good. And so this idea of these good works on display as we go out, as we live on mission in our daily life, these things go together. As we are being good citizens, as we're being kind and compassionate, as we're being gracious and patient and generous. In our passage this week, the attention turns a little bit more internal to the Christian community. So while that is true, that we are um, devoting ourselves to good works as an expression of the grace that we've experienced, uh, out there we also are going to devote ourselves to good works um, in here, you know, in the church community, because as much as it's profitable out there, it is also profitable, it is beneficial for us to be committing ourselves to good works within the community of the church. So that's where the emphasis shifts in the passage um, where we're going today. And there's um, kind of two movements that I want to um, highlight out of our passage this morning. The first one is negative. Um, Paul talks about what is not profitable. And he highlights the unprofitable nature of disunity in the church. And then he moves on to something that is uh, positive, is good, is profitable, and is, he sort of uses the language of fruitfulness in the next one, um, but the generous provision that the church offers uh, to those in need within its uh, kind of scope. So this fruitfulness, this profitableness, this beneficial aspect, this good work of us generously and sacrificially providing for the needs of those who are around us. And there's a specific kind of example that, um, uh, that we will look at as we get into that. So, firstly, on the negative side, what is unprofitable, uh, and Paul highlights this internal disunity, is not profitable to the church. So verses 9 to 11. He says, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Dissensions controversies, quarrels, division, these things, Paul says, are worthless, unprofitable, 
It is of no benefit to anyone when the church is torn apart by division that is that people are unwilling to work through. I don't think he's saying uh, division will never come. But people who are uh, committed to maintaining this divisiveness, Paul is warning about here. Um, if, I think if you've ever experienced disunity or conflict within your church uh, family, you know how detrimental it is to your own following of Jesus and to the mission of the church. It saps the joy of Christian faith out of those who are in the middle of it. And even though, you know, those who are sort of observing as a church is tearing apart causes so much doubt in their faith. Where brothers and sisters in Christ should be united in Jesus, division robs them of that sense of love and family. And it often drags people away from the, the mission of the church to go and share this good news because why would we want to invite more people into a church which grieves us already when we are split apart and not enjoying the unity of Christ together? Um, notice what is causing the divisions that Paul is calling attention to. These controversies, these genealogies, uh, uh, quarrels about the law. These quarrels and divisions seem to be about things that are in the Scriptures. You know, how should we interpret the law, the Torah, you know, the, uh, how should we do this? Uh, what kinds of genealogies, whether of Jesus or whether of the people in the church and how they're connected to significant people or uh, however that works, but they seem to be taking something from the Scriptures and making that thing the focus, but forgetting the good news of the Gospel of Jesus that Paul has just outlined in verses 4 to 7. The dissension, the division, the quarrelling, the fighting has come about because people have taken some other thing, perhaps even a good thing or perhaps a relevant thing, but they've made it, rather than being um, perhaps secondary of importance, they're bringing it in and saying, no, this is what is going to shape um, our community rather than Christ. They've taken the focus off Jesus and have made something else more important. This is often how false teaching and division enters into churches where people, rather than focusing on Christ together, take some other part of Scripture even and say, this is the marker. This is the bar that you must clear in order to be a part of the Christian community and often it's not something that Scripture says should have that role. 
You know, uh, what are some examples of this? Um, it's you know, perhaps not such a hot button issue at the moment, but um, maybe a couple of decades ago, um, people were very passionate about end times theology. You know, are you amillennial? Are you premillennial? Is there going to be a rapture? When's it going to happen? All that kind of stuff. And the, you know, the scripture is not 100% clear on this argument. And so it cannot be um, absolutely central and primary to whether somebody belongs to the Christian church or not. But there were certain contexts where it was a divisive issue like that. Where people would say, no, we've got the right idea here, therefore we will you know, almost separate ourselves off into our own enclaves of people who are right. And those ones over there are wrong. Uh, I've known teetotalers, you know, people who would, uh, absolutely wouldn't uh, touch a drop of alcohol, um, who then take the attitude, you know, and often probably for a good reason. They're wanting to avoid drunkenness, as the scripture says. Perhaps they have experienced, and it is right for them to completely avoid, perhaps from their own uh, previous alcoholism, or perhaps from, you know, suffering at the hands of an alcoholic parent or something like that. And so there are good motivations behind it, but then in their attitude towards other believers would say, if you are somebody who would have a glass of wine on a Friday night, well then, that's not acceptable. I cannot be uh, united to you because of this point. So an understandable concern, but expressed in a way that causes division in the body of Christ, but not a central issue. That's something where those people should be able to talk about their convictions and perhaps be gracious to one another in their expression of that uh, difference of opinion, but to still maintain unity. More recently, we've seen a lot of uh, tension and disunity among our uh, churches uh, because of uh, responses to, like, COVID vaccine mandates. Mask wearing, not mask wearing. You know, we're shut down, we're open. And there have been different perspectives taken by people on this point, sometimes with great passion, and it has caused significant tension and disunity within our churches, but that is not a central gospel issue. It is a matter of wisdom. It is a matter of consideration. It's a matter of seeking Scripture to be wise in how we listen to our governments and respond. But it is not a matter of who belongs and who does not belong in the Christian church. But disunity arises where people have taken a particular attitude towards that question and put it as more important than the uni unity that we have in Christ. Folks, you may have experienced those kinds of division or disunity and perhaps even contributed to them. It is very worth you considering what are those secondary issues 
that are worth having opinions on, right? Like there are issues in the Bible where you might, I mean, sometimes you think we've got our central issues that we must hold on to or you're not orthodox within the Christian faith. You know, there are things like the person and work of Jesus that we want to be on the same page on or we are not in the Christian faith. There perhaps are another sort of range of things that are very important and it's going to shape the kind of church that you go to. It might form whether you're, you know, whether you're a Baptist or whether you're a Presbyterian or whatever. So it shapes your, your sort of closest Christian community. Uh, but then there are other things that are, um, there's a whole lot more room for interpretation or different opinions on. In all of those things, we need to work at having the balance right. What do we have as non-negotiables? Where can we have a level of grace and unity with one another? Um, and where is there you know, even more sort of space to have different opinions? But we can work together because in Christ, we are one church. It is worth taking some time to reflect and think and talk to the people within your church family about some of these issues. What is more important? What is a non-negotiable? What can we be a little bit more loose on in order to have a gracious kind of unity with one another that has room for flexibility on the things that are less important? Where you sit together with your Bibles open and say, how do we, how do we understand this? Can we disagree and still be brothers and sisters in Christ? It's worth the work of that because, Paul says, this kind of division, this contention, this fighting over stuff that shouldn't even be primary is worthless. It's empty. It's unprofitable. It's bad for the church and it's bad for our gospel witness and it is bad for the people who are in the thick of it. See, Paul highlights the seriousness of the issue in verses 10 to 11 where he talks about what to do with the person who stirs up division. You know, this person isn't just, uh, just a little bit of a silly fella or whatever, but Paul says, no, this is so serious that it might mean this person is essentially removed from the church community. If a divisive person is going to continue being divisive and not work towards unity and repentance, they're not just a little bit quirky, but Paul says, no, they are warped, sinful, and self-condemned because they are actively making the choice to not keep Christ at the centre. That's pretty heavy. And you know, when, when we're in a, a fairly intimate community of people... That is a big call. And it would have been very similar for the Cretan Christians. They wouldn't have been a huge population of people, but their survival and their unity is so crucial. Now, Paul doesn't want to be heavy-handed in this sort of disciplinary process that he envisions here. He says, warn them. Warn them again. Give them the opportunity to repent. Call them to repentance. And you know what? Even if for a time they need to be uh, removed, we can look elsewhere in Paul's letters, and he says, you know, maybe remove them for a time, but give them the opportunity to repent again and rejoin. There's always the, the desire for restitution, restoration of relationships and people. 
But it says disunity is so unprofitable, so unhelpful, that you cannot just let it fester. You need to either work towards unity, or if that's not happening, there needs to be a deliberate action of, of essentially removal of the problem. Have nothing more to do with this person. Now, I think each situation of that um, may look a bit different. And it's sort of the wisdom of the church community together, leaders and members walking through a process like that to see what that might look like in each situation. I don't think Paul gives us a real roadmap in this passage about what that looks like, but he just highlights the problem that this is a crucial thing. Disunity is destructive to the church. Therefore, we need to work at unity through the gospel in our church families. This gospel and good works together kind of theme that we have in chapter 3. In our churches, the good work that we want to focus on is building unity through the gospel. Building unity through our shared focus on Christ and our gracious working through of all of the other issues together with our scriptures in our hands and a patient, gracious love towards one another. So that was, that was the negative one. You know, what's unprofitable? It is unprofitable to have disunity in our churches. Uh, but Paul then moves on to what is fruitful, what is profitable, what is good in the next few verses. So let's read verses 12 to 15. Um, <clears throat> you know, we're moving into Paul's kind of final greetings in, in, the, uh, in the letter. And he says, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, there's good works again, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Um, these instructions and greetings give us a nice little insight to the connections between uh, Paul and his co-workers and the various churches in the local areas that they've gone and, and planted and started. In fact, all of the, the kind of greetings at the beginning of a letter and then those ones at the ends of each of Paul's letters um, even though in a sort of preaching series, you feel like, oh, we're just kind of at the end and there's just a little bit of, you know, a little bit of um, uh, kind of logistics or whatever to work out. Actually, they give us this fantastic picture of the relationships and the way uh, the sort of dynamics between these different people work. But <clears throat> as we see here, we've got Paul in some other place where he's sending the letter from. He's heading off to Nicopolis, uh, which is on the, on the kind of western coast of, of Greece. Um, and these other fellows, um, since Paul now, you know, he sent Titus to Crete to put things in order, didn't he, from chapter one? 
You know, going to send you there so that you can put things in order, you can appoint leaders, you can get these, this kind of fledgling church, which has got a whole bunch of cha- uh, challenges, um, get that all organized. And then he is presuming Titus is going to do a good job of that. And, um, and so he says, look, I'll send these other guys to come and sort of take, uh, take the leadership as well. Um, and now I need you to come and, and come and join me. But there's these other fellows, Zenos and Apollos, who seem to have been on Crete as well. Um, what exactly they were doing there, we don't know, but they're clearly connected with the Christian community there. That's probably Apollos, who we, um, you know, we see in, in Acts, in, in sort of Corinth and Ephesus and places like that. Um, we don't really know who Zenos, the lawyer, is. Uh, but they've, they've obviously been doing something amongst the Christians in Crete, and so we have this instruction to support them, to send them on their way, to provide what they need, see that they lack nothing. These uh, people that are mentioned are most likely to be church leaders of some description, kind of co-workers of Paul, preachers and teachers, these kinds of people, sort of missionary folk. And they have this important role in the foundation of these first churches around the Mediterranean of building them up, planting the church, establishing leadership, establishing good doctrine. And Paul isn't just giving this information for the purpose of going, isn't it nice that these guys are moving around? But it's an invitation, even a command for the Cretan Christians to participate in the movements of these leaders to participate in the life of the church global. It's an invitation for them to devote themselves to good works, to demonstrate the gospel by giving practical, financial, logistical support to these missionary ministers. They see that they lack nothing. See that they help when there are needs like this. This is a fruitful thing to do. If you're, it's unfruitful, Paul says, it would be unfruitful for them to not support these guys. It's an important thing. It's a fruitful thing. It's an expression of good works. It's an expression of the gospel for Christians to generously provide for the needs of others. Now, the, the particular context of this, I think that's true, and you know, Christians have done um, a whole lot throughout history of providing for, you know, having an eye to the poor and to the needy and, uh, and those who are in crisis and so on, and we must continue to do that. The particular context that's in our passage here this morning is about looking at ourselves, looking at our local church as being a part of the global church. As people come and go between our churches to receive and support and send out and support those who are moving around for the sake of the gospel. Um, You know, I was uh, just speaking to Margaret earlier, 
Um, because, you know, we're at Rosalie Baptist, and um, we were remembering Bree, um, who recently passed, and, and you know, the, there is a, like, in that grief, there was a joy for us knowing the sharing of grief and love for Bree between this church and our church, you know? Like, even though we're, you know, most of us don't really know each other, <laughs> um, and, and we're an hour or so apart or whatever, um, there's a joy in the unity that we've got where, you know, you guys are a church family here, but we are part of a big church family that is with one another. We are united with one another in Christ, and Paul is calling on the Cretan Christians to look for ways to be a blessing to, you know, beyond just their little island. Now, I think it's the case. I mean, you guys are praying before um, for persecuted Christians in India. Um, And, you know, if persecuted Christians from somewhere else are displaced and flee, you know, uh, isn't it the role of the church, uh, especially where those people flee too, to welcome them and care for them and provide for them? You know, this idea of going, even though you've come from somewhere else, you are in Christ with us and we will meet your needs. Um, I heard earlier that someone is going, like, overseas. Is that right? Yeah. I want to say Micah. Go on it, somewhere else. Um, as his church family, you know, as he sort of goes and he's sort of outside of your community for a, for a time, you will hopefully continue to bless him and care for him and, and see that his needs are met in some way or another, whichever way that works out in this context. Um, I know Jimmy was sort of over in Nepal and with the Acts 29 stuff, you, you've been kind of at least praying for, but having some kind of relationship connection with church planters in Nepal. It's the same kind of thing, realising it's not just us, but we're part of a global community of Christians who want to make the name of Jesus great everywhere, and some of us have the resources to help others who are in need, and etc., etc. You know, we, we want to contribute to this. This is a fruitful thing. This is a beneficial thing. Don't just look to our little patch here and don't just keep our material resources to ourselves but look to the needs of people. Who can we support to go and proclaim the gospel somewhere, to plant a church somewhere? Who is it that, you know, have there been students that have moved to the Sunshine Coast to study at, you know, uh, USC or whatever, and they need accommodation? Do you have a room that you can rent out at sort of cheaper board to provide for their needs and to welcome them into a church community? Who is moving from your church to somewhere else because of work and you can provide connections for them because of the people that you know in new places to link them in with a new church? You know, this picture of, of a network of churches and people moving here and moving there and going here and going there to maintain the unity of Christ 
in all sorts of different places, to enable the ministry of the gospel in all sorts of different places. And Paul says, this is something we should be devoted to. This is something, this is a, a, an idea that we should have of ourselves in our head that it's not just our church, but we are part of the church and we want to seek to provide for the needs of people moving all around in that space. It might be something, as Paul says, uh, that we need to learn to do. You know, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, um, something that we need to practice more, but we'll only learn to do it by actually doing it. Uh, because we'll probably be challenged as we, you know, need to be more generous or perhaps give up a space in our house or whatever it might be. Um, that's something that we will learn the fruitfulness of, we'll learn the profitableness of um, as we do it. Um, folks, I, I understand that your, your kind of overarching theme for this Titus series has been about healthy church. You know, what, is a, what does a healthy church look like? Um, how does one establish a healthy church on the island of Crete? Um, in our final chapter, and especially these last, this last section we've focused on this morning, we see that a healthy church is one that is clinging to Christ, is devoted to good doctrine, you know, is, is not uh, dividing and, and being breaking down into disunity because of secondary issues, but one that clings to Christ, one that clings to his word, and one that is devoted to good works. Both out in the world as we interface with the non-Christian world around us, but devoted to good works in our church as we seek to build unity, as we humbly work through disunity, as we repent for our own sin and divisiveness. But also we're devoted to good works by providing for the work of the gospel, by looking around the world and going, who are the people who need our support that we can provide? How can we send people on so that they're not lacking anything? How can we provide for the needs? How can we welcome people into our community to bless them and benefit from the gifts God's given them? These things, Paul says, are what a healthy church does, and they're profitable. They're profitable for the church. They're profitable for the world around us. They're profitable for the individuals who experience them. Now, we don't get a picture of what that profitability will necessarily look like. Will it mean rapid church growth? Maybe, maybe not. Will it mean joy in Christ? I would say definitely. Uh, Will we see the results of our generosity to people going on mission overseas? Maybe or maybe not. But these things are profitable. They are what Christ has called us to do and he will bring fruit from it as he sees right. These are good things to work in, to work out, to, to devote ourselves to, as Paul says over and over again. 
So, folks, be committed to Christ and be committed to good works in your church, to the church, and out beyond the, you know, in the in the world around us as well. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. But please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC. 